Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Trent Kling, Leighton Kling with you on this edition of Food Focus. Lots to talk about, including earnings from Yum! Brands. Chipotle rolling out chorizo nationwide. And speaking of Chipotle, we'll talk a little bit about an advance in E. coli testing. But first, we begin with earnings from Darden Restaurants. Darden Restaurants did report their earnings for their first quarter of fiscal year 2017 earlier this week. And they actually beat earning expectations and raised full-year guidance. All in all, it seemed like a really solid first quarter for the restaurateur. Very surprising for Darden restaurants. I was surprised, and I got to be honest, I think executives for Darden restaurants were also surprised. Darden reported a profit of $110.2 million, or $0.87 on a per share basis, compared with $86.4 million, or $0.67, for the same quarter last year. So earnings from continuing operations were $0.88 a share. This was against analyst expectations of $0.82 cents per share, so they beat on profit by about $0.05 cents per share. Revenue, however, was a slight miss. Revenue came in 1.6% higher than last year, but was down very slightly from analyst expectations overall, coming in at $1.71 billion for the first quarter. Again, this is first quarter fiscal 2017 for Darden Restaurants. Revenue was against analyst expectations at $1.72 billion. So an overall pretty solid quarter, if not exceeding expectations, meeting them overall. Overall same-store sales for Darden came in at 1.3%, but this is mainly due to Olive Garden, which had an outstanding quarter. And keep in mind, this quarter did not carry the impacts from their last promotion, the promotion we talked about here on the Food Focus podcast, the promotion where they were giving away pasta passes that were good for seven weeks for unlimited pasta. They were about $99, and they sold 21,000 of them. So these results do not reflect that. But overall, Olive Garden same-store sales coming in at 2%, really helping out that bottom line there. For our listeners, Darden Restaurants owns Longhorn Steakhouse, the Capitol Grill, Yard House, Bahama Breeze, Seasons 52, Eddie V's Prime Seafood. They actually divested Red Lobster back in July of 2014, so we no longer have to report on that when we're talking about Darden restaurants. But overall, a very solid quarter. And as I said at the beginning, a lot of surprise, I think, on the executive's point of view. After their announcement, shares of Darden were up by just under 6% in pre-market trading earlier this week. So it was a jump of about $3.64 from Monday's close. And as you mentioned, this doesn't include the top-line revenue they will get from their never-ending Pasta Pass promotion. This is now eight straight quarters of same-store sales growth for Olive Garden. And this is one area where their same-store sales are increasing despite all this talk of food deflation and the restaurant recession. We're seeing margins also come in fairly strongly for Olive Garden, and they are rolling out new promotions, including a recurring promotion where customers can go in, eat a meal, and then take a meal home with them 
to eat later. Olive Garden is really driving home the atmosphere portion of eating. And one of the things that we've talked about over the last few months is that customers have wanted to get food to go a little bit more. They want to go in, gather up their food, and then eat that food at home. But the Olive Garden, as well as these other restaurants, Longhorn Steakhouse also offers a very inclusive dine-in experience. The Capitol Grill, much the same way as is Eddie V's prime seafood. So these businesses are businesses that are selling not only food, but the overall experience of a night out. And that's something that they and then Red Lobster, when they did hold Red Lobster, were able to drive home to the consumer on a regular basis. And Olive Garden has continued that process. So it's good to see that customers continue to want to go through those doors and experience those nights out eating in restaurants. But now the question is, now that we see Olive Garden's success and their likely top line revenue success for next quarter, what can other restaurants do to emulate Darden? To be honest with you, this was quite surprising in that Gene Lee said we continued to gain market share and our same restaurant sales growth outperformed the industry by a considerable margin. And what he meant by this was that they're actually competing at a very high level compared to those fast casual restaurants. He said you're going to be seeing a lot more fast casual restaurants file bankruptcy, a lot more doors shutting. And they say that is because of that dine-in experience. They're offering something that other restaurants do not. And if you look at their overall theme for Darden restaurants, their overall mission statement is be financially successful through great people, consistently delivering outstanding food, drinks and service in an inviting atmosphere. So you see right there that their mission really is to take care of that dine-in experience. While they're giving a lot of options for people to take their meals home, they are definitely not shying away from still delivering great service within their restaurants. And I think this is something that was really interesting in that they're taking market share, or at least they're claiming to take market share from the fast casual and fast food segments overall. So I think this is quite surprising. And to be honest with with you. I don't know if any other restaurant operator can really have as much leverage as they can as far as being able to have a really good price point and still deliver on the atmosphere. You look at Longhorn Steakhouse, they really pride themselves on the ambiance. A really good atmosphere anytime you come into any one of their locations and you look at the menu and it's not too high of a price. And I think that reflects on how they want to roll this out. They want to make food affordable for families. They want to be able to compete, I think, on that price point and that will draw people back into those restaurants who had previously been going to fast casual more often. It's interesting because just this week, Matt Maloney, who is the CEO of Grubhub, predicted that more people would be eating in their own house. More people would be choosing delivery over going out into the restaurant. But the numbers that we see from Darden Brands and from Olive Garden in particular certainly suggests that there is still space in the marketplace overall for the eat-in diner experience. For our second story, Yum! Brands also reported earnings. They missed on top-line revenues and profit. However, they raised guidance. The miss primarily was due to Chinese operations, as same-store sales for almost all of their segments came in negative due to several political happenings in the region. However, they said due to strong growth in the United States as far as same-store sales are concerned, KFC and Taco Bell's performance is booming. This was a surprise to most. However, the stock has been performing about 3% lower after the bell. 
Yes, they did raise guidance, and part of that is because they feel like they can deliver earnings per share in part because of lower input costs, lower input costs, and stable fast food industry prices in comparison to declining prices elsewhere is going to be the likely reason for increased margins in the future. And this is something that has been relatively untalked about when it comes to food inflation. When you look at the individual holdings of Yum! brands, at least worldwide, and this is minus China when they released their earnings because, of course, Yum! Brands China or Yum! China, if you will, will be spun off on November 1st. Pizza Hut is down in same-store sales 1% worldwide, 2% in the U.S., where they're seeing a lot of pressure from Domino's, Little Caesars, and other pizza takeout chains. KFC was the big surprise. They saw a 4% increase, including a 6% increase in the U.S., which I think barely anyone saw that coming, especially since KFC had been scuffling in recent years. So a lot of their recent ad campaigns have drummed up support for their product, and they've also undergone a number of new product releases, which is something that's relatively different for them. They have a stagnant menu, more or less, from year to year. And then Taco Bell kind of continued its trend of a strong last few years. They saw a 3% same-store sales increase here domestically in the United States. That moved them to about 1% same-store sales rise year-to-date. This is, keep in mind, third-quarter earnings, so there's still one quarter to go. This is on top of the 5% increase in same-store sales they saw in fiscal year 2015 over their fiscal year 2014. So basically, you're taking takeaways from this earnings report is that Taco Bell continues to grow, not only in terms of top line revenue, but also in terms of fast food market share. They have continued to innovate, continued to change and tweak their menu items, and they're seeing success because of that. But I think the real surprise here, not only Pizza Hut being down and them trying to find a different way to reclaim market share back from Domino's, Little Caesars, and other brands, but that increase at KFC, Layton, I know that raised my eyebrows. Yeah, absolutely. You know, to be honest with you, those ad campaigns may just be working. We've talked a couple times on this podcast about the changing of the kernel and how different the ad campaigns have been over the past six to eight months. And then you look at the results here and you just got to wonder if these ad campaigns truly are working. I got to say, KFC has been in the news and at the forefront more than their competition. We talk about Popeye's and we talk about Church's Chicken being at the top there in the United States market. So overall, I am very surprised here. And we're talking about ad rollouts. Taco Bell, too, with their new product rollouts, a very consistent structured model of having new items available every few months there for Taco Bell. But it seems to be working, at least in the United States. People apparently do not like consistency with those new New menu offerings. So very interesting growth there. As for the financial side of things, the company reported adjusted earnings or earnings per share of $1.09 on $3.3 billion in revenue. This was against analyst expectations at $1.10 a share on $3.5 million in revenue. So again, a miss on profit and revenue. And this was according to a consensus estimate from Thomson Reuters. So overall, the company has a lot of opportunities going forward. And I am curious to see if that Yum! China spinoff on November 1st will have any effect on the leadership, the leadership within the U.S. as far as running more ad campaigns and really focusing on the products and restaurants here in the United States. Again, that spinoff will result in a separately traded company. Yum! C will be the symbol there for the Chinese operations. Well, from fast food restaurants to 
Convenience stores. Quick Trip, one of the nation's largest private operators of convenience stores and gas stations, has been evaluating a pilot location which has a drive-through within their store. They're also testing out locations that do not have gas pumps, so just locations that serve food and other merchandise within the store. So the true convenience store concept, which is a first for Quick Trip. For those that are uninitiated to Quick Trip, they operate more than 700 stores in 11 different states. Some of these states for Quick Trip include Arizona, Georgia, Illinois, Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, North Carolina, Oklahoma, South Carolina, and Texas, and they are mostly concentrated in larger metropolitan areas. The smallest cities you might find a quick trip in might be 10 to 15,000 people. But here's the thing regarding Quick Trip. As someone who is relatively familiar with their format, they have really driven brand engagement with the customer. If you talk to someone from the Kansas City metro area, for them, Quick Trip basically is synonymous with a convenience store. There are not many other convenience stores in competition in these areas that have Quick Trips and people once they go to a quick trip, are usually hooked. So this trend towards a drive-through, towards quick trip locations without gas stations, this is interesting for them as they take one more step towards essentially just being a fast service restaurant themselves. Yeah, that's right. This is really interesting and a bit of a delay in the news here. We don't get a lot of reports coming in from Quick Trip since it is a privately held company that you kind of alluded to. But over 700 stores, approximately 730 currently in the United States, their revenue as reported in 2013 was $11.2 billion. So it's probably a little bit above $12 billion right now. And this is an interesting company, you know, a company I've been well acquainted with for quite some time. This is a company that really does not shy away from capital expenditures. They're always looking to grow and try to innovate to create a very branded atmosphere. As you mentioned, they're really trying to invest in their customer and they're always looking at places to build new locations. They're tearing old ones down and refreshing their overall store. And you see this as of 2014, they started a new concept, the QT Kitchen. And they started it as a pilot program, but they've rolled it out to most of their locations now. They've either expanded their current locations via a remodel, or they've totally taken down old locations and created new ones to make these QT kitchens work. They're a little bit bigger quick trip concept, but they offer a lot of fresh food and they operate from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. in the markets that they exist. So again, a lot of innovation here at Quick Trip. And to see that they're quick trips without gas stations is kind of astounding to me. But their executive team, their CEO, said that gasoline sales would be declining in the coming years. So he really has the foresight to see that electric cars are coming about. And overall, gasoline consumption in the United States has been elastic with the price of gasoline. So as the prices went up in the previous years, people were using less. They were being more economical. So he is really just envisioning a future that looks at those higher margin sales from their food offerings. And they're really now trying to focus on those fresh food items that are now very popular with those consumers. And it does help, as you mentioned, that they are having a very strong brand presence with those customers. One of the nicer things for Quick Trip as they begin to develop these different formats whether it be with the drive-through or with the gasless locations, is that they're doing so in these larger metropolitan areas where they've already made a name for themselves. So Quick Trip food is fairly popular. 
Quick Trip is similar to a 7-Eleven in that concept, and indeed there are a number of 7-Eleven stores, a number of other convenience stores that don't necessarily have gas associated with them. But generally speaking, the food is thought to be of a little higher quality from a Quick Trip, and it's not just ready-to-eat food, but the QT Kitchen's concept, for those that have never been to one of these stores, it's actually quite amazing. It's basically a full-service or close to a full-service restaurant and coffee bar in the back of a quick trip location so you're not just talking hot dogs or taquitos on a roller in the front of the store and they have those as well similar to what a 7-eleven or a circle k might have depending on which part of the country you're in they also sell not only ready to eat food but made to order food and similar to another convenience store chain that we've talked about in the past casey's out of Encanny, iowa quick trip will actually make pizza based on your order. They'll also make sandwiches and that type of thing based on your order. So their menu items are rather diverse. They're not a traditional fast food type menu and it's all automation based. So you order basically from a kiosk and then the employee will make that food after you submit an order. So they're thinking ahead, not only in terms of having this kitchen's concept, but also in terms of the fact that they're not really staffing it with those front end employees. They're instead relying on the customer to initiate orders through the kiosk. And that saves on human capital over time. Yeah, and that's exactly what I was going to say. And the locations nearest me that have these QT kitchens, they don't seem to be adding too many more staff members. So this overall is going to save on the overhead expenses. You would typically think this would raise it, but again, the automation of this process is really helping to streamline the store sales here in this arena. And so I would look forward to really strong results from these rollouts, especially if they expand their drive-through concept and are able to keep staffing down through that new avenue there. Well, we wouldn't be doing our job if we didn't talk about Chipotle on the Food Focus podcast. News came out on Monday that Chipotle plans on introducing the chorizo nationwide, and this actually happened on Tuesday. And this actually coincided with National Taco Day, which happened on Tuesday of this week, and they tested it in select stores originally in July. So around the first week of July, they expanded into markets in Ohio. They expanded into the Columbus, Ohio market, Denver, Sacramento, San Diego, New York City, and one single location in the DC area. And so overall, it looks as though they had a very positive response from this chorizo. Again, for our listeners, the chorizo is a chicken and pork sausage. It's quite spicy. It uses a a signature blend of spices. And people really have taken off with this concept. And apparently, they were getting a lot of positive feedback overall. This announcement came fairly quickly. It went from announcement that it would be nationwide to a rollout in the span of a few days. And this contrasts with what happened with their last protein rollout, which is tofu-based sofritas, which took place over a much longer period of time. At first, it was a featured menu item, and then it was gradually added to menus throughout the country. Chorizo becomes Chipotle's sixth protein. So they only have six proteins on hand. And 
as you mentioned, it typically is fairly spicy, although we don't mean spicy as heat spicy, but it is a highly spiced blend here. And that's one of the things that really stands out to me. A lot of news outlets are calling this spicy or fiery. In fact, the word fiery was used in a few headlines. That's actually not necessarily what this chorizo is all about. There is some chorizo out there that is spicy or fiery, but its spice content is relatively mild in terms of heat, even though there are a lot of spices in there. One of the other things that really stands out about Chipotle's chorizo compared to other chorizos is that it is made from a combination of chicken and pork. From Chipotle's perspective, this may serve two purposes. First, it'll have a lower saturated fat content than your traditional Mexican chorizo, which is usually entirely pork and therefore contains a little bit more saturated fat. This is, by the way, a play on what many consider to be the Mexican-style chorizo and not the hard-cured Spanish chorizo that has risen to popularity as well. Additionally, the chicken-pork combo also gives them a little bit of flexibility because in the past, as our listeners may recall, they've had issues sourcing responsibly raised pork year-round. And in fact, this has been an issue on the beef front as well. So having a meat blend in this circumstance gives them a little bit more flexibility as far as what they're sourcing and when they're sourcing it. Additionally, this doesn't really affect kitchen administration because where it's prepared at Chipotle's that feature the chorizo, it's prepared on the flat top versus their gas grill and range. And oftentimes this area actually runs out of room. A lot of people, if you go to a Chipotle during a busy time of day, you'll notice that oftentimes they are running out of room, especially on the range portion of it or the right hand side due to them trying to grill veggies, steak and chicken all at the same time. Time. So chorizo is prepared basically alongside the barbacoa and the carnitas. So it's a little bit easier for the staff to prepare. And you'll see from pictures that Chipotle has released and also pictures that people have posted on social media that have been trying this out, you'll see that there is a little bit more browning on this meat in comparison to their other meats. Their founder, chairman, and co-CEO Steve Ellis said that the reaction to chorizo in their test cities was so significant that they went ahead and decided to make it available in all their restaurants across the country. But Leighton, this also dovetails quite nicely as far as Chipotle is concerned with the end of a number of different promotions they were running through September 30th. Yeah, as we mentioned several times, they were running the Chiptopia promotion, which was giving a lot of free burritos out. But then that promotion actually does linger on through the October month because of those people who got their end rewards by achieving a mild status or a hot status for all three months. And then also in September, if you had a free burrito, let's say you bought four burritos, you get that fifth one free. You can actually redeem that in that next month. So Overall, they should be getting a lot of sales, a lot of interest for the chorizo through those customers there that are still experiencing some of those rewards that are rolling over. I did want to speak about the reward program. Chiptopia ended up having over 3.6 million people participating. 85,000 people hit the hot status, which means that they went to the locations at least 12 times per those three months that they were having this promotion. That means that they're having over $20 million in free caterings available for these participants that achieves that hot status. That's an amazing amount, but I did the math and it $9 per on 
entree, those 85,000 people would have spent a minimum of $21 million. Not to mention they're bringing in a lot of people with them to those restaurants when they're trying to get those Chiptopia rewards for that month. So a lot of sales and opportunities for Chipotle. The only thing I would question here on the marketing front, I know it's National Taco Day, but it would be nice to have seen this rolled out in September. If in July and August they had already seen a really positive response from those five test locations, it would have been neat to see it rolled out a little bit earlier so they would have a whole month of September for those Chiptopia members to experience the chorizo. I myself haven't personally tried it, although I have friends that have and they swear by it. This is their new choice of protein now when entering a Chipotle location. Honestly, I'm surprised Chipotle is rolling it out this quickly because in the past, they've had some delay in terms of rolling it out. But you make a very good point regarding their Chiptopia promotion. You know, the headlines that said that Chipotle's CEO had no idea how much Chiptopia was helping and that they might be throwing away millions of dollars in free food because it wasn't going to help out their top-line revenue. Those headlines were borderline irresponsible, to be quite honest. Basically, the quotes surrounding Chipotle and what they released to the FTC said that it would be too early to tell how much the Chiptopia promotion impacted their bottom line, but moreover, their same-store sales because they had that E. coli contamination and scare towards the end of last year. So same store sales were going to be variable anyway. That's basically all the letter said. They knew, and there is a lot of information out there that states that the Chiptopia promotion was helping out their top line revenue and in many cases was driving customers to return on a more regular basis than they were otherwise doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we look at that $20.4 million in free catering and news outlets really ate that up. But we don't take into consideration the almost 2.7 million people that participated in Chiptopia Rewards that did not achieve that hot status. So a lot of sales coming in and we'll only see in the next couple quarters earnings those results. But overall, I think there was a lot of negativity that was unwarranted for Chipotle. Of course, the promotion for Chipotle, born out of an E. coli outbreak last year that drove customers away to some extent. And speaking of E. coli, researchers at a Kansas university have discovered a quicker method, potentially, of testing for E. coli. This is a really interesting story here. Tahina Banerjee, Santimukul Santra, and a group of researchers and students at Pittsburgh State University in Pittsburgh, Kansas, have developed a nanosensor that could actually detect E. coli contamination at extremely low concentrations. In fact, as low concentrations as one colony forming unit, and this can do it within a few hours, and in some cases, within just a handful of minutes. And, and Leighton, this could honestly change the way in which a lot of businesses test for E. coli because it's impacted the food marketplace a lot over the last few years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you see what it did to Chipotle and that it really cut their share price almost in half there. And so a lot of concern about food testing and food safety. Whenever there's a very large scare or a very large outbreak, news of some safety recall concerning food, you see a lot of it expand into the social media realm. And this never is a good thing for companies, especially a growing company. So these are very important things that need to happen. Testing is the number one priority, I think, 
right now as far as prevention. I think if someone could see a single colony and be able to act on it much quicker, this could save them months and not to mention the millions of dollars down the line if you have some settlements. I know Chipotle was settling into the millions of dollars for those people who had gotten sick from that E. coli outbreak. So this not only helps the American consumer feel safer if they're able to test and acknowledge a presence of E. coli, if they can notice some negative bacteria or virus ahead of time, it could save them millions, if not billions of dollars, depending on how large the organization is. Dr. Bonerji actually talked with a, a local television station in Pittsburgh, Kansas, CAPS 13, about this new advancement, and she tried to basically put it in layman's terms what this meant for the food industry. Let's take a listen. So this machine is going to detect very small changes, like it's uh, detection in the T2, or in other words, magnetic relaxivity. So whenever, suppose, like for an example, there is A and B, there are two different things, and if those two different things are interacting, and if this interaction is taking place, so this machine can detect in the real time. And that's the one of the main advantage of this machine over the other existing techniques is this detection is faster. Like if there is an infection, if it has just started in your body, in other instruments, this infection has to be in a certain level before you can actually detect. Or in other words, some threshold value is required. But in this case, even a very minute amount of infection could be traced and could be monitored by this instrument. This is a benchtop MRI, and the one of the main disadvantages of the other existing techniques, for instance, I'll quote about the RT-PCR. When we talk about PCR, you need to have the trained personnel. You need to have those expensive enzymes. When you are talking about this instrument, Basically, you need is a magnetic nanoparticle which is very stable and you can carry it to any place. And this benchtop MRI also could be carried to the places where this infection is taking place and the detection would be very faster. So you don't need trained personal. It's very user-friendly, inexpensive, and the fastest method of detection. And I actually got a chance to talk with her a little bit today before recording the podcast about what this means and how they arrived at this concept. But basically, to boil it down, there had been two different modalities as far as testing for E. coli and other viruses. Basically, there are fluorescence methods, including the PCR and ELISA methods, and they are very useful for detecting small concentrations, but they require expensive equipment, and the sample prep can take up to a couple of days as you're trying to grow the bacteria cultures, and sometimes the readout times can take even longer, around 24 hours. So you're really looking at a three- to four-day process from start to finish. And then you also have magnetic resonance, which can detect very low levels of bacteria, and is quicker to read out, but is ineffective at higher concentrations. So these researchers at Pittsburgh State University had the idea to connect these two modalities, what they called the fluorescence modalities and the magnetic resonance modalities. And without getting too far into the science, because to be honest, I don't understand it completely myself, they have stumbled upon a way where they can actually test for E. coli in certain circumstances under one hour. In fact, they ran tests with both untreated 
treated lake water and milk, so just fresh milk, and they were actually able to track down varying amounts of E. coli in both sets of samples, in some cases in as little as 30 minutes. So when you look at a diagnosis time of three to four days versus 30 minutes, that's three or four more days that Chipotle could have had or Costco could have had in their E. coli outbreak to kind of stem things and recall things a little bit sooner. This could take on a life of its own. As I was talking to Dr. Banerjee about this technology, she said the, it tests for a particular strand of E. coli that affects juice, milk, beef, and certain other forms of meat products. But again, most of the testing can be done in less than 30 minutes. And there's been a lot of interest in talking to her from different companies throughout the food service industry. Now, this is in preliminary testing. They've done their first few studies, and they feel as though what this does is statistically significant and it is operational. So they're expanding their study over the next few years, but it's also got good potential outside of the food industry in terms of testing drinking water in various cities. And we've heard even domestically about what an impact this makes, but that was one of the reasons Dr. Bonnergy wanted to kind of investigate this particular resource is because she hails from India and in many cases drinking water in India comes from lakes that might be contaminated with E. coli. So all in all, a lot of great research being done here by this group. And the nice thing is this test that they're running with these dual modalities, they can actually tweak the chemistry of it based on the virus or bacteria that they are testing for. So it's actually to the point now where they believe they can parse out different types of flu, for example, avian flu versus the respiratory flu in patients, uh, because the sensor is highly sensitive. They're actually testing it right now, uh, not at Pittsburgh State University where this development happened, but they're testing it elsewhere on the Zika virus. But in terms of E. coli and in terms of foodborne illness, they feel like this would be equally as effective in testing for salmonella. So this could really change the way in which the food industry tests for bacteria and is able to recall contaminated merchandise and food more quickly now than ever before. And ultimately, you know, we talk about obviously the consumer and it's probably a good thing. E. coli can be fatal, of course, for those with weakened immune systems and even for some of those without weakened immune systems if consumed, if the bacteria really takes off. But in terms of the company perspective as well, not only keeping people alive, but maintaining that positive PR by making sure outbreaks don't get out of hand could ultimately save them a lot of money on their bottom line because as several releases about this particular study have mentioned, this is actually a cheaper form of testing as well than the forms of testing that are out there right now. So it makes less of an impact on the bottom line if you test on a more regular basis. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I think should be mentioned here is that it's going to take a little while for the FDA to approve a process like this, which is oftentimes a sad thing if the process is known to work and be a valid process. But here recently, and we talked about this on the Retail Focus podcast, and this had to do with the blood testing from company Theranos. This was a blood testing firm that had this new technology that was FDA approved, but then it came under heightened scrutiny after some of the tests came back a little bit off. And so they ended up realizing that this wasn't a valid test. And therefore, Walgreens and other pharmacies that were using this blood test in partnership with 
with Theranos had to take it off the market. And so there's a lot of litigation now concerning that company. And I think this is one of the things that really needs to be scrutinized when you're looking at something that could be used for the mass consumer. You wouldn't want to have a false positive test on something related to an E. coli outbreak or a future outbreak. So if you're a company, as you mentioned, as big as a Costco, you would really want these tests to be accurate if they're going to be used in a widespread context. But yes, going forward, this has a lot of implications with money and consumer safety. And I would be very excited to see it used on a higher volume, at least for some preliminary tests and some FDA approval thereafter. So far, tests have shown this to be highly accurate in terms of being able to diagnose not only E. coli's existence in milk or water, but also the amount of E. coli relative to other material in the milk or water. But the chemists I talked to did mention that they were being very cautious and very studious as far as rolling this out. And that's one of the nicer things when you look at Theranos, obviously a for-profit company, and there was a reason to shoehorn it through FDA regulations and FDA approval before it made it to Walgreens, whereas at this case, again, they are researchers with a not-for-profit university working on this, but a lot of exciting things going on there as far as the chemistry of this, and that's one of the reasons why we included it in today's Food Focus. Well, we reached that point in the podcast where Leighton and I each tell you about a new menu item that we tried over the last week or two, and we'll begin with Leighton. So I did something that I've been doing a lot more lately since recording these Food Focus podcasts. I went to Arby's for a limited time sandwich, the Smokehouse Turkey Sandwich, which they claim is smoked for about eight hours in a Texas smoker and then brought in to these individual restaurants that are serving this limited time sandwich. The sandwich has cheddar cheese, has the turkey, has onion rings on it. And white barbecue sauce. So overall, there's a lot of different tastes that came into this sandwich. But I have to admit, it definitely had the smoked taste. So I don't think they're lying when they say they smoke it for that average amount of time. So a very tasty sandwich. It did have a good relationship to its bun. They use an artisan-style roll. And it came at a very good price point, about $3.90. So overall, a very good quality of sandwich. However, if you're looking and concerned with the saturated fat, it comes with 8 grams of saturated fat and it has 44 carbohydrates and 500 calories. And again, this is just for one sandwich, but a very filling sandwich. And it makes sense when you look at those nutrition facts. On one of the first Food Focus podcasts, I talked a little bit about Bolt House juices because this was one of the products that I tried. I had tried one of their 1915 cold-pressed juices. So I was at a neighborhood grocery store or a grocery store nearby, and I saw that they had a new juice on their regular Bolt House Farms line. This is the berries and green veggies juice, and this juice features predominantly blueberries and blackberries, but also cucumber and spinach. And I actually really like cucumber water, and I do a lot of juicing as it is with things like cucumbers and blueberries when I create smoothies or some sort of drink in the morning. And this also has grapes in it as well. So cucumbers, spinach, grapes, and blueberries, as well as uh, blackberries, and also banana, as well as some kale puree. So a little bit of everything per eight ounces 
It has about 90 calories in it. I bought a 15.2 ounce bottle. I did not see it in any of their larger size bottles. The 15.2 ounce bottle was on sale for $2.99 and I enjoyed it. I enjoy a lot of the Bolt House juices, but this one cut a nice balance between being too sweet and being refreshing. The cucumber really added to it. And again, some people don't necessarily like cucumber. I really enjoy cucumber and I enjoy being able to get, as it says on the bottle, two servings of vegetables per eight ounce serving. So really quite remarkable on the nutrition front and a lot different from a lot of juices that are either sweetened with sugar or sweetened with mostly apple juice. In fact, the first ingredient on this was cucumber juice. It got me thinking to go to Bolthouse Farms website. And for those that may not know, Bolthouse Farms was acquired a few years ago by Campbell's, but it turns out they actually have a number of other new flavors. They have raspberry blood orange and mango pineapple colada, which I haven't seen in stores near me yet. And then three new varieties of their protein plus shakes and shake juice blends, including strawberry, banana, honey, almond butter, and coconut. They also have a couple of new salad dressings, and I liked their avocado ranch that they came out, which has a yogurt base, but I found out on going to their website that they have a salsa verde avocado yogurt dressing, and I promise you if I can find it, that will be the next thing I'll sample for the purpose of this podcast. It's funny you mentioned Bolt House Farms because in the end of June of this year, they actually had a massive recall. They recalled some 3.8 million bottles of protein shakes and cappuccino beverages all across the United States. And this was in conjunction with an FDA recall alert. Some people reported of getting sick. However, there was no direct signs of anything specific except that the company said there were signs of spoilage and it led to an unpleasant odor. So this is interesting that you actually tried one of these products. They had had some brand loyalty problems thereafter, but they seem to be back on track since apparently you wanted to try some of their beverages. I pretty much stick to their juices. I don't use the protein shakes or any of their cappuccino-based beverages at all. So the beverages that were included with the recall. So I didn't have a reason necessarily to veer off from my brand loyalty. But I did have acquaintances of mine who do drink the protein shakes on a fairly regular basis. And that was one of the things they mentioned is pretty much after you first open it, you've got a couple of days to finish it off in the fridge before it does go bad. Well, that'll do it for us on the Food Focus podcast. Remember, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus as Leighton tweets and retweets all of the latest food news during the span of the week. Check out our website, retailfocuspodcast.com. And if you haven't already subscribed to this podcast or the Retail Focus podcast by seeking us out on iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Republic, Podcast Addict, or any other podcast delivery service. Have a great few days, and we'll see you next week with Retail Focus Podcast. This has been the Food Focus Podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Thank you.